So <clears throat> I have, as usual, I set the clock for 8.30, the alarm. And so when it rings, feel, feel free to leave. You don't have to stay and be polite, but feel free to also stay and continue to discuss or ask questions if you would like. <laughs> and uh, there's fewer of us this evening than usual. It's very different, isn't it? Quite understandable. Anyway, I, I would still uh, like for us to go around the room and if everybody could just introduce yourself? Or we all know each other? Yes? I went. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I get it going. <laughs> okay, you got it going. I'm Nick. Susan. Terry. Gio. Maxie. Kate. Sandra. Lauren. Melanie. Eva. Shell. Stephen. Rusty. Chris, Jessica, George. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so while I was away, I think uh, you had uh, Jordan and Autumn and uh, Shelley uh, starting in on uh, our, actually probably having a fairly complete discussion on <laughs> suffering, right? Yeah. So. <clears throat> uh, any, anybody have any uh, dangling issues or leftover thoughts from that discussion? It's quiz time. What did the Buddha teach? Suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering and the end of suffering. Great. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> and there's... Uh, dukkha means unpleasantness. There's all kinds of unpleasantness in life. But... What what are how, how can we simply describe the different kinds of dukkha, different kinds of unpleasantness? Unpleasantness comes from the body, and unpleasantness from the mind, physical and mental, right? Right. And so, <clears throat> having understood that distinction, that the two kinds of unpleasantness, then. How can we sum up the first noble truth? Nice catchy little phrase. Life is suffering. Yeah, that doesn't tell us anything new. Yeah. And when the Buddha first taught these noble truths, he introduced the discussion to his five companions who had been studying and practicing Dharma with him for many years by saying, I'm going to tell you something that you've never heard before. Life is suffering isn't what he told them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Suffering comes from craving and aversion? Well, that was the next year. Now, what I was fishing for, and I think it's really helpful to remember, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. That was what he thought that was really profoundly new and opened up all kinds of other possibilities. Okay. So that there's two different... Of all of the unpleasantness in life, they fall into two categories, which is physical unpleasantness, which you can't do anything about. 
it's going to be there. But there is all the mental kinds of unpleasantness, grief, unhappiness, sorrow, loss, uh, and all the things that are generated from craving, and existential suffering that we experience. All of these things that come from the mind. Plus, even physical discomfort doesn't itself create suffering. It's the mind's reaction to it. And so that's what's so important about this, that there are these two kinds of dukkha. And that one is inevitably a part of our existence, the kind of beings we are. But the other is totally optional in that we can learn to understand its nature, its causes, uh, its cessation, and the path to its permanent, complete, and total cessation. Yeah. That was, that was the important message there. <clears throat> so I, I think it'll help you, whenever you think of the first noble truth, just think of that phrase, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, and then you can recall the, the important gist of that teaching. Um, there is another really crucial piece of information in this teaching on the first truth. That is often missed, and that's the relationship between the pleasant and the unpleasant. But another way, it's the relationship between suffering and happiness. So, uh, suffering and happiness, two different things. And you have a mental experience that is. Uh, so of course, you can have some degrees of both. No, it's not two different things. They are continuum. The total absence of suffering is total bliss. That's the important thing to remember. That every step away from immersion and suffering is a step in the direction of bliss. And that the ultimate bliss that is possible is in a being who has completely overcome suffering. Because when the last vestige of suffering is gone, there's nothing left but bliss. So that's the other thing to remember about that first truth. Okay? So then, now it's time to move on to the second truth, the cause of suffering. The sana craving is the cause of suffering. And what does that mean? I mean, there's some obvious things that it means. We, it is unpleasant when you really want something and you can't have it, right? It's also really unpleasant when you have something that you don't want. Like a thorn in your finger. So these are the two sides of craving. The desire for something, or the desire for something not to be. The craving for existence or the craving for non-existence. Now of course there's a there's many forms that can take, all the way from the craving for another piece of chocolate and the craving not to have the thorn in your finger all the way through to 
the desperate clinging to your continued existence uh, as a mortal being, the craving for existence, which is accompanied by the suffering of the fear, everything that comes from knowing that it can't be. But the other half of that, too, is a craving for non-existence. There are those times where our our experience of life is so despairing that we crave non-existence. But these are all, this, this is just the whole gamut of, of craving in its two different flavors. You know, it comes in, you know, two different flavors. <laughs> <laughs> Wanting, don't want. And to really understand craving, we have to see, well, what do these two different flavors have in common? And so I'll let you have a stab at that. What, what is it that makes craving craving? In what way is all every form of craving the same? It's not accepting what is. Exactly. It's wanting things to be different than they are. It's non-acceptance of what is. It's resistance. Yeah. So, one way that we could put the second noble truth, we could say that resisting what is, is the cause of suffering. And I think any sensible person would agree resisting what is is insanity. So to a certain degree we've been practicing insanity all of our lives. But but then we don't consciously choose this. We don't get out of bed in the morning and say, well, I'm going to resist what is. <laughs> I do. Some, sometimes we do. There, there are times that, times that we do actually say that. But, now where it becomes confusing for some people is, okay, if craving is wanting things to be different than they are, and if it's resisting what is, then... I guess that means I shouldn't do anything. Everything's all right the way it is. Wars, who cares? Disease, who cares? Pain, suffering, who cares? I'll just accept it all the way it is. Is that what it means? No. <laughs> no, it's not. It does not mean that at all. And that, and that is <clears throat> that is a distinction that is very important for us to be clear on. But what we do need to penetrate to is the understanding of how it is this tendency of our mind to basically project an idea of how things might be different than they are. What life would be like without the thorn in my finger? Your mind projects that. Because it's something that doesn't exist. And so you are posing a non-existent that your mind has projected against the existent that is defining your immediate experience. And that collision, you're caught in the middle. And that collision is painful. 
the degree to which it's painful varies a whole lot. We don't always realize, we don't always recognize our own suffering. Uh, part of the reason is we're so used to it. We're so used to suffering. This is not. I'm not saying we're so used to the things that cause pain or that cause suffering that we don't notice them anymore. We're so used to suffering that we're not. We, we can't really imagine what it will be like not to have any suffering. So we basically accept an awful lot of suffering in our life. If we go back to the relationship between bliss and the worst kind of suffering you can imagine, that they're on the two ends of the same spectrum, then you realize that the only time you're not in perfect bliss is when you're clinging to something and you're suffering. So even if you're this much short of perfect bliss, you're still suffering. And you're still suffering because there's clinging. Yeah. Couldn't you just be tired? What's that? Couldn't you just be tired? Like, I mean, bliss seems like <laughs> I still keep thinking it seems exhausting. Um, I'm confused. I'm very confused about this bliss idea. Okay. A constant bliss. <clears throat> well, bliss. To understand this kind of bliss, you really have to. You have to think of it in. A particular way. There is, it's not the same as the happiness that we feel that the, the, the affect that the mind generates when we get our way, when we get what we want, or, or, or even when we're surprised by something that it, it, it's what we wanted even though we didn't know we wanted it. That's something that the mind is generating, and it's It's a long way from what we're talking about, bliss. To understand bliss, you have to think in terms of what does it mean to be totally free of any and every kind of suffering? What would it mean to be perfectly and completely satisfied? That would be a state in which there is nothing that you don't have that you want, there's nothing that you do have that you don't want. You are you are in a state of complete and total satisfaction. You can't imagine that, right? That's true. Yeah. Hmm? I can't. I you, know, you can't? Well, I, you, I, you, much, you, I get exhausted. I, I don't know. It's well, Okay, well, you can just start with, you know what it's like, you, you can't imagine what it's like to be completely free from physical pain. Like when we do the loving-kindness meditation, we actually think about this. You know, uh, may I be free from suffering? Well, what does that mean? Well, nothing hurts. Um, and even if you've never had a moment where there was nothing at all that hurts, you, you still know on that scale of relativity what it's like to go from where there's more things that hurt to where there's fewer things that hurt. Okay. So you could be in, could you be in pain and in bliss? Physical you could pain? have you could have pain in the sense of physical discomfort and still be in total bliss. The reason being that the opposite of bliss is the mental suffering that is generated by the mind's resistance to the physical discomfort. 
So you have the physical discomfort, but that doesn't mean that you're that you're suffering. You can be in total bliss. You know, uh, if we look at the Buddha, for example, okay, uh, we know when his cousin rolled a rock down and it, he was trying to kill him, but instead the rock shattered a sharp piece of rock, badly lacerated one of his feet, and it got infected. And it was too painful to walk. Now, this physical pain, I mean, we, we know what that means when you have physical pain and you try to take a step and the physical organism resists to putting the pressure on there. He could still be in a state of bliss, even though he's got a, a cut and an infected foot, because he's in a total acceptance of this, this physical discomfort is just one part of the physical discomfort of the dukkha dukkha, the, the physical unpleasantness. That is an inevitable part of, of being uh, the kind of being we are in the world. Likewise, the Buddha, on occasions, as he got older, all those years of sleeping on the ground under trees and things like that, he had a lot of back problems. And the sutras have told us about how his uh, uh, attendant, Ananda, who was his cousin, often, you know, he'd say, I've had enough, and he'd and, uh, asan, uh, uh, Ananda would massage his back. It was obviously physical discomfort. He was all obviously taking care of his body, but that doesn't mean that he was suffering in the way that we do. That, does, that doesn't mean that he couldn't be in a state of bliss, because he's in, in a state of non-resistance of the, the, the you know, he, he, he had a physical body, so it had that kind of nerve ending that produces, that when it arrives in the brain, it gets interpreted as pain, physical discomfort. And he had to have, otherwise, um, otherwise he couldn't do the ordinary daily things that we have to do to protect ourselves. So he had that. But, if you can just extrapolate from your own experience of greater and lesser degrees of pain, but even more importantly, greater and lesser degrees of resistance to it, then you can begin to see how, how even physical pain is not inconsistent with uh, being in a state of bliss. Let's look at the resistance part of it. There's another experience, we've all experienced what it's like to have more pain and less pain, and we never do less, that we like less more. <laughs> right? That we're definitely, you know, you can be in a very contented, fulfilled, uh, happy, even blissful state, even, even when you have some pain. I think that's something that we've all experienced. And the other thing we've all experienced is those times when we had pain that was causing us suffering, but for one reason or another, we allowed ourselves to come into a place of acceptance, and the pain lost most of its noxious power, right? I, I, I'm sure everyone's had that experience. And this is really, this is what the Buddha asked the, uh, uh, his companions to do as a part of his teaching. He said, he said, 
you know, it wasn't just, this is the cause of suffering, and you guys take my word for it. It was, this is the cause of suffering, and you must discover this for yourself. Well, how do we discover this for ourselves? He said, whenever you're suffering, you will find that there is craving at the root of it. If you can identify that craving, and if you can let go of it, even for a moment, in that moment, the suffering will disappear. And the more often you succeed at doing this, the clearer will become your understanding that, yes, indeed, what he told me is really true. And we have to do it. We can't really proceed on this path nearly as effectively as we need to until we really come to the place of understanding this second truth. It is craving that causes our suffering. When you have a severe headache, you can resist it. And the more you resist it, the worse it hurts. Your mind will generate thought like, oh, I can't stand this anymore. And that very thought makes the headache worse. Or your mind will generate the thought, oh my God, this is not letting up. It's going to go on for hours. And that makes it worse. Or you can have the thought, well, maybe I'll go and take these pills and these pills will make my headache go away. And that very thought actually makes the headache worse. These are all manifestations of resistance. But have you ever had a headache where you just stopped resisting and just, all right, I'll just be with it. And it didn't hurt as badly. That's a pretty common experience. That's a, that's that's the kind of experience that we need to keep following. When, when you're hurt in all kinds of different ways, when you're suffering because of what somebody said to you, if you can get to the root of how it is that your mind, what, what, what your mind is doing is generating that suffering, if you can find the craving and the clinging that's at the root of it, and once you spotted it, once you recognize it, you let go of it. Now, I know you're not going to be able to let go of it for very long. And sometimes you can't even let go of it at all. Sometimes you can't even find it because these things tend to hide themselves. But if you do find it, and if you do let go of it, for however long, for just a few moments, or perhaps longer, you're, what you're going to do is you're going to have an experience that is demonstrating to you, to the collective of mental processes that you are, that indeed this is true. And as this becomes more and more established in your mind, it becomes a part of how you understand and interpret the world. At some point, it's only an intellectual process. If you happen to remember that, oh, my suffering is being caused by my craving, and if I let go of my craving, I won't suffer, then you can relieve your suffering for a little while. But that's happening at a very superficial level, not very easily, and most of the time. Most of the time when you're experiencing severe suffering, you're not going to think of that at all. You're not going to remember that. It's going to be totally out of your reach. But if you keep having that experience, you keep repeating that experience when you can, on those occasions when it's easier to, it's going to become so deeply implanted in your mind that it starts to become an automatic understanding. It's going to be part of your intuitive interpretation of your experience.
And to the degree that that happens, then now it's taken it's taken very deep root in your mind. And this is what happens with a stream enterer. A stream enterer is someone who the understanding of suffering, you know, we say stream enterer has achieved insight into the three characteristics, one of which is suffering. But in stream enterer, the understanding of suffering has become deeply embedded in this way. Stream enterers still suffer, but not for long, and not as badly as they used to, because they're going to recognize, they're going to have this reaction of, well, wait a minute, I know where this is coming from. If I can't let go of it completely, at least I can stop let it driving me, keep it from driving me to the extent that it does. Yeah? I think I'm going to end up phrasing this badly, but I'm going to try. Um, Today I had an interesting experience where I had some anxiety. And I'm like, oh, this is, where the heck is this coming from? And I I stopped right in my tracks and I I just waited to see, where is this? And then I, it took me way too long to figure out, well, hungry. You haven't eaten. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, now this is just not quite fair. Hungry is supposed to be, you know, growl in your stomach and, oh, yeah, gee, you know, you're supposed to get a feedback for that. Your body's supposed to clue you in. It's yeah. not supposed to go sneaky around the back and go, oh, oh, oh. And, yeah. and that, that which you were saying about you have to segregate the emotional response from the physical sensation, mm-hmm. I didn't even get the physical sensation. Yeah. How, how was I supposed to? I, it, it didn't. Okay, but there's a different way to focus on this, though. Which, you see, <clears throat> okay, you were feeling anxiety and you didn't know why you were feeling anxiety. Right. Okay. And when I stopped and analyzed And, and it's, a, it's a good and important thing to try to figure out where the anxiety is coming from. So that you can take action in the world, yeah. like eating a sandwich, yeah. <laughs> to bring it to an end. Yeah. But what I talk about here is something a little bit different than that. Not taking away from that in the least, but you were feeling anxiety, and it was unpleasant. It was dukkha. It was suffering. Right. Okay? Yeah. Now... Suppose that you were in a situation where no matter how badly you wanted to, you couldn't have a sandwich or do anything to eliminate the hunger that was the cause of the anxiety. Right. What you didn't have any doubt about, although you might not have clearly and specifically recognized it, is I am suffering because I am experiencing anxiety. The anxiety is making me suffer. Okay. Yeah, I got that you didn't want to be anxious. That was the thing you needed to discover. Okay. If you got to the place that it's okay to be anxious, okay, what is anxiety? Well, anxiety is this feeling here, this feeling here, this feeling here. That's all anxiety is. And, hey, I can handle this. Anxiety? Go ahead. Be there. Then you stop suffering. That doesn't keep you from figuring out that, you know, Something is something is triggering this anxiety that I'm now hoping to be there. 
and there may be something that I can do to bring an end into it. Uh, and, and you do always want to do that. So this actually is, in a way, what you're talking about here is bringing me back to the point I was making earlier, that understanding how you're resisting what is and how that craving is causing you to suffer in the moment is not the same thing as not doing anything about it. So you can still use your intellectual faculties to figure out the cause of the problem, even though you're no longer you're no longer suffering in response to the problem. You can figure out the cause of the problem. This thorn in my finger doesn't belong there. And you can go ahead and you can take action to resolve it. I mean, in a simple thing like that example, both your example and my example of a thorn, there's a pretty simple thing that you can do to resolve it. Most of the things that cause us suffering in life, it's not nearly as simple. And very often, our attempt to resolve it is unsuccessful. Right? And so, we do our absolute best to resolve it. And when it remains unresolved, then if we have the wisdom and if we've cultivated the ability, we continue to accept it as we proceed to try to figure out what our next way is to resolve it. There's a lot of terrible things going on in the world. There, there is, well, you know all the things. I don't need to tell you. And to be a Buddhist who understands the, the, the truth of, of suffering and the cause of suffering doesn't mean that you don't do your absolute best, whatever is in your power, to change those things. Because you do. But you do it from a different vantage point of non-attachment to the outcome. Non-attachment to the outcome actually will empower you. You try it. You don't get the results you wanted. Because you're not attached, you're not demolished by this. You're not discouraged. You're ready to go on and make the next attempt. So how does someone who is researching to cure a horrible disease not attached to what they're doing? Well, it's, it's very difficult for any ordinary human being. This gets us into, you know, the first two truths are about suffering. The next two are about the end of suffering. Okay? And really, when we say that craving is a cause of suffering, and we say that we can prove to ourselves that this is really true by identifying the craving and letting go of it so that we find indeed the suffering goes away, this is all just a part of understanding suffering. This is not about the end of suffering. This is about understanding suffering. The end of suffering, this, this takes us into a whole new arena. Now it starts, now the richness starts to come out. You know, first you discover that you aren't the self that you think you are. And that's somewhat disconcerting, but very interesting. But then comes, okay, then, if I'm not, what's really going on? It's the same thing with suffering and non and the end of suffering. So we come to understand it, we come to understand it as clearly as we can. The more clearly we understand it, now we're prepared to move on to understanding the, the end of suffering. Right? So this part of it, recognizing 
the cause of your suffering in all kinds of different instances and demonstrating to yourself that this is indeed what's at the root of the mental unpleasantness which is coloring my life the way it is. This is just to give you the conviction that you need to move forward. It is also giving you an extremely important tool for understanding the next step in the process. The third truth is that the cessation of craving, the permanent, complete cessation of craving, leads to the permanent, complete cessation of suffering. And you notice that's not the that's not the end of the four truths. Because knowing what causes suffering does not bring about the end of suffering by itself. So you have a problem of how do I indeed get to this place where I no longer cling, resist, crave, and cause myself to suffer. That's what the third truth is. Getting to the essence, to the to the bones of that. And then the fourth truth is the practical method. But the first three prepare us. And without a really clear understanding of the first three, we're we're going to be limited in our ability to succeed in following the the, the method, the path. Yeah. Um our lives are so short. It's a blink. It, it, it's it's not even a blip or a nanosecond in terms of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's, it comes and goes. And this practice, this end of suffering, and I, it's going to sound really gross when I say it, but it almost could be construed as a kind of self-indulgence. <laughs> You know what I mean? I mean, because, you know, I don't want to suffer. I'm going to do this practice, the end of suffering, all of this. But there's some little nubbins in me, and it's not so very little, that thinks that there's there's more to it than this. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is much more to it than this. And the simplest way to put that is that And this does get into the third truth, which I have a whole two minutes before the bell rings. <laughs> but we'll continue on uh, another evening. Um, what we discover in the third truth is that this craving, which is the more immediate cause of our suffering, is in turn rooted in delusion. That delusion is to do with the nature of reality and both of the essential parts of reality. Delusion regarding ourself and delusion regarding the world. So craving is the result of a deluded perception. And when we get... When you understand that, then the way that it's resolved, the way you get to the end of suffering, is you have to start with that root. Delusion is overcome through insight that becomes wisdom. When you have wisdom, 
the wisdom frees you from the delusion. The delusion frees you from the craving. And the craving frees you from the suffering. But if we go back to this delusion, the delusion is that we are a separate self. In a world of separate objects. That is the delusion. So, no one has ever overcome suffering in a selfish way. All people ever do is suffer a little bit less in a selfish way. To overcome suffering suffering means to move completely beyond the deluded misperception that you are a separate self. And a consequence of that is that wisdom, which brings the end of suffering, also brings with it compassionate, infinite compassion. Infinite compassion for all of these other deluded instances that think they are separate selves and who are suffering as a result of it. So, no one would ever embark upon the path of enlightenment without a significant degree of selfish motivation. And that's why Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. If he'd said, I, I, I teach suffering and a path that'll make you want to help everybody else stop suffering, about a third of his audience would say, that's nice, and walk away. <laughs> and he didn't have to say that. Because in the process, in the same process that we're going through, it becomes self-evident. It becomes clear that, you know, the uh, what lies on the other side of the delusion of separateness and essentially the delusion takes suchness and divides it into two parts, self and not-self. And that line that it draws becomes the battle zone where self tries to get what it wants and get rid of what it doesn't want. And the worst thing about it is the self always loses. <laughs> so, you said life is, our lives are so short. But even that is part of the illusion. Our lives are way shorter than we think they are. <laughs> every every instant, you start all over and you die again. So you, you know. So uh, to go to some rather platitudinous statement statements, the past no longer exists, and the and the future is just a figment of your imagination. But the present is where all the action is. And that's where you've got to focus. And as you, you know, as a neophyte on the path, you might think, oh, if I only have a day to live, what's the point? You know, and, and that's understandable. But as you come to understand more fully, you realize it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you only have five minutes to live. There is a story, uh, one of the sutras, 
Avanka, uh, uh, I can't remember. I, I often forget certain parts of the details of these stories, but somehow or another, this monk had really angered a powerful person. So he hired a band of thugs to go track him down in the forest where he was meditating. And so they tracked him down, and they caught him, and they said, Ah, we're going to kill you. We've been paid to kill you. And the monk said, Wait, just one minute, okay? He picks up a rock, and he smashes both of his legs. He says, Okay, I can't get away. You <laughs> kill me in the morning. Just give me tonight. And he became enlightened in the course of the night. And I'm sure they probably killed him and took his head back to the box. I, you know, I, I could say I don't remember those parts. I remember what's important to me. <laughs> that he was he was at the stage of his understanding where, you know, becoming awakened and achieving freedom from suffering is is not something that was only worth doing if he had a whole lot of time to enjoy the bliss of being free from suffering afterwards. See what I'm saying? And it doesn't matter if it's in the last of these in the whole series that you call yourself. But, but I know that's not something that's immediately evident and obvious. But as we continue to discuss, it will become more clearly obvious. You'll understand it. And, and your understanding will not be the result of... Because... I said so, or because I said the Buddha said so, or because anybody else said so. And it will not be because I present you a logical argument that is so convincing that you think, well, I guess it must be true, it makes sense. You will understand it because as more and more pieces of the puzzle fall into place, at the deepest level of your being, you start to realize that, yes, that's the only way it can be. And and as that happens, then you'll become like that monk. You'll pick up a rock and say it doesn't it doesn't matter. So anyway, back to the other part of your point. It's all right to seek enlightenment for selfish reasons, because you've got to start where you are. And while you are immersed in the delusion of separate selfhood. And while you are experiencing the suffering that that produced, that is going to be the strongest motivation that you have. And to try to pretend that you are other than you are is going to be futile, foolish, frustrating, uh, neurosis-producing, producing everything else. You don't have to. You don't have to. Um, and you, and you say, well, craving is a cause of all suffering, but I crave freedom from suffering. Well, I'm gonna <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's all right. You crave freedom from suffering. You crave enlightenment. That's all right. You're, when you overcome the craving, you will still have... Actually, there are two different words. Tana is one word that means craving. There's another word that means the wish for and it's very wholesome. And it's the more appropriate term that is used to describe the desire for enlightenment, the wish for awakening. And 
We all have the Buddha nature in us. That's the only reason that you're in this room right now. That's why you're here. And as that Buddha nature matures and develops, all of this is going to become more and more clear. It's what's guiding you. In essence, there is a cloud of obscuration in your mind that just needs to be dispelled. And as each part of that cloud is dispelled, the pure light of your own Buddha nature will shine through more and more. And the obscuring cloud is the delusion in which the craving and, and, and the suffering uh, are located. And so as you, as you dispel the cloud and your Buddha nature comes through, whatever selfish motivations that you have are going to naturally fall away. And as you acquire more understanding and wisdom, you're going to be replaced by, uh, by love, by a genuine kind of love. By, um, you see, Buddha nature, uh, the clear light of your mind, love, um, the supreme highest consciousness. We can make a catalog of terms that people generate. They're all referring to the same thing. They, they all come down to ultimately they're different ways of describing the same thing. And that's the light that's going to shine forth. 